Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here are your co-hosts, Doug Maurice and Shahan Jeharaja. And we're back on the College Football Survivor Show. Interesting one, I think, today, Shahan. We're going to rank the five best coordinator combos in major college football. So you have your list of the top five combos. I have my list of the top five combos. It's weird. There are things you have to take into account. If you have a head coach who is a play caller on one side of the ball or very, very involved on that side of the ball, how do you evaluate the coordinator on that side of the ball? And I will tell you the reason that I think this is fun. There's a couple things that are happening. Alabama just hired a new offensive coordinator and a new defensive coordinator. We are going to talk about that, and that factors into this. Miami just fired its offensive coordinator and lost its defensive coordinator. We're going to factor that into this. There are things happening here, and there are some coordinator moves that feel seismic, and there are some coordinator moves that feel like not that big of a deal And this is not the same thing as the best teams because there is a specific example, Shahan, that I double-checked that to me is an indication of this a little bit. And it was, for instance, it's just a for instance. I have so many tabs. Can I count the tabs? I I probably have 50 tabs open at the top of my computer screen right now. So I'm double-checking it. Did I get it right? Yes, I hear it is. The 2019 Indiana Hoosiers – before the pandemic year, when they were surprisingly very good, they were eight and five in 2019. Tom Allen's third season as the head coach, Shahan. The offensive coordinator that year was Kalen DeBoer, who's now the head coach at Washington. And the defensive coordinator that year was Kane Womack, who's now the head coach at South Alabama. And those were two darn good coordinators for an eight win Indiana football team. So the best coordinator combo is not the same thing as the best team and like that that was the example that I came up with that sort of helped bring this all together in my mind no doubt and uh which by the way if you're an Indiana football fan the fact that you might need that to have like any success ever is probably not the most encouraging thing that's ever happened but uh but no I mean that's that's like a really really great like one of the better pairings of the last five years and nobody would have paid attention to them in that kind of way. So I I think that that's a great example. Uh, Look, there are obviously going to be teams that are nationally competitive that are going to be featured on this list. But I I totally agree. I think that uh, that combos were interesting because the other part of this, too, is that, you know, you really do, especially in sort of the middle classes of college football, have these teams that are so unbalanced. You know, you have a team that's just all offense and no defense or all defense and no offense. So this actually ended up being a harder exercise than I anticipated it to be because I I don't think that there are as many programs as we think, even at the highest level, who maybe have pluses at both coordinator spots. And the hard thing is a lot of guys, we don't know how good they are. So I think what catches your eye in in a – something like this and a process like this is a a guy on the way up who's gotten some pub and his side of the ball has had some success and maybe he's gone on some head coach interviews and you feel like this guy's going to be something or if you're maybe somebody who has been a head coach and being a head coach wasn't your thing but the reason you got to be a head coach is because you were so good as a coordinator And now maybe you're coming back down on the other side of your career and you're a former head coach who 
is iffy there, but as a coordinator, it's like, there's no doubt this guy knows this side of the ball. When he's not in charge of the whole culture, when he's not dealing with boosters, where he's not motivating the whole team, and he's just digging in, scheming it up and coaching one side of the ball, you know he's good. So those kind of guys catch your eye sometimes. If you're in between, we just cited like Kalen DeBoer and, and, and Kane Womack. If we were doing this exercise in the offseason before the 2019 season, we wouldn't have had them in the top five. We didn't know how good they were going to be. So we also understand there's some perception. There's some realities about how your head coach fits into the mix and scheming it up. So we're not claiming this to be the be all end all of defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator lists, but I do think it allows us to look at some pretty darn good college football teams in a different way, because I know the teams on my list are good teams, but it's not like my top five are the top five teams in the country. No question. No question. And honestly, I'm kind of just excited to get into it because I am curious to see what directions you go. Because to me, there was a clear number one. And I'm curious if if you have the same one. Okay. So let me start with my number one. And my number one is Phil Parker as the Iowa defensive coordinator. (laughs) And if Iowa hired anybody that wasn't related to Kirk Ferentz as the offensive coordinator. What uh, What if you hired Phil Parker as the point scorer and pointed out that they had the highest scoring defense in all of college football. If you, that's a great point. And that's really going to matter. If you had a scarecrow as Iowa's offensive coordinator, if you had Kirk Ferentz's neighbor, but they weren't blood relatives as the offensive coordinator. If you had, I don't don't know that. I feel like he's definitely the kind of person who lives on a compound with his family, like full on righteous (laughs) gemstones, like a four houses right next to each other. I think that that's absolutely how Kirk Ferentz lives. I was double checking some stuff. I think officially like UCLA does not have an offensive coordinator. Oh, interesting. Because Chip Kelly is like, there's nobody listed. If you had it blank, if when you went to the coaching staff of the (laughs) Iowa Hawkeyes, there was a blank instead of Brian Ferentz there, I would have had Iowa in the top five. So this is going to introduce us into something that I have to talk about because Iowa is embarrassing itself even more that was than it was embarrassing itself this year. And what has happened in the last day or two, Shahan, with the revelation that Iowa has set up parameters for Brian Ferentz as the offensive coordinator, that they must score 25 points per game this season and win a total of seven games, or he's fired. This is now his contract. He got a $50,000 reduction in his salary from nine hundred grand to eight fifty. dollars That's also called in the coaching parlance, docking your allowance. He got his allowance docked. <laughs> and, and Iowa, it, his contract will be terminated if they don't meet these thresholds. The only two that were reported were that they have to average 25 points per game and that they must win seven games. I have gotten my hands on a, the, the document itself, underreported. He must take out the trash every Thursday. (laughs) He has to keep his room clean and no talking back. No talking back or the allowance will be docked even more. So this is in the contract that they are setting out the parameters of the way that Brian Ferentz can keep working for dad. (laughs) Okay, well, for the record, it's just the first two. We actually have seen the contract. But the the funny thing is, Iowa, because defensive points count towards this. They just have to average 25 points per game as a team. Uh, I believe that they scored more than 25 points 
twice last year. I think it was Nevada and it was uh, Rutgers. I think those were the only two times they scored more than 25 points all season last year. But actually, I think it was uh, my, my good friend Max Olson over from The Athletic who did the numbers. And if you take out defensive and special team scores, I was offense alone only averaged 14 points per game. It is unbelievable what is happening over there. And and by the way, when we say 25 points per game, that would be good enough for 85th nationally. That That's still pretty bad. And this is like, hey, man, if you do this, we'll pay you more than a million dollars for the 2023 season. And it's I, I've never seen anything like this. So this is an embarrassment, and we're going to talk for several four minutes about more minutes about how this is an embarrassment. It is an embarrassment that Kirk Ferentz and Athletic Director Gary Barta are allowed to do this; that they have chosen to run their program this way. By the Football Outsiders metrics, Iowa's defense last year. Just let me double check. Iowa's defense was number one. It was the best defense in the country. The offense, Iowa, was one eleventh. That's in their F-plus ratings, first and 111th. So we now set up a very interesting 2023 season because here's prediction number one. If I were Phil Parker, one of the very best defensive coordinators in the country who is continually dragged down by the ineptitude of the Iowa offense, you know what I wouldn't have my defensive players do this year? Score! (laughs) No scooping scores, no interceptions, knock the passes down, that's fine. And if you do pick something off, take a knee. Whoops. Hup, hup. We call that the Ferentz knee. Oh, what happened there? Oh, I just said I could have run 65 yards for a pick six, but I fell. So Phil, because why? What does Phil Parker want? I'm not trying to put words in Phil Parker's mouth. I'm trying to stand up for one of the best defensive coordinators in college football who's been saddled with this yahoo on the other side of the ball whose daddy won't fire him. You want that guy gone. So, okay, so do that. Iowa defenders, no scores this year. Number two, the most interesting teams in college football suddenly become the defenses that are facing Iowa this year. Go opposing defenses. Let's go, boys. Rally the troops. Don't give up 25. I have their defensive rankings for the last year for the 12 teams on Iowa's schedule. Utah State, 118. You got to bring it. Come on, Utah State. That's not good enough. Bounce back year. Come on. Come on. Iowa State, fifth. Good. Okay. Matt Campbell and the boys keep that up. Western Michigan, 73rd. Penn State, seventh. Manny Diaz. How about a shutout? How about a shutout, Manny Diaz? Michigan State, 79th. Mel Tucker, he's a defensive head coach. You can get that better. Purdue, 63rd. Ryan Walters. Hey, he's a defensive head coach who Purdue just hired. Let's bring it, Purdue. Wisconsin, 19th. That was with Jim Leonard. It's a new staff there, but Luke Fickle. Come on, guys. You're a defensive head coach. Let's do this. 19th. Minnesota, 9th. That's a good defense. Northwestern, 67th. They fired their they they actually fired their bad coordinator and brought in the guy from North Dakota State. They should be better defensively. Rutgers 49th. Greg Schiano, he's always got something for you. Illinois third. Bielema, what was what does Brett Bielema want to do more than get somebody fired? And then Nebraska 75th. Matt Rule again motivated. But here's the question: Will opposing teams, as they are beating Iowa in this coming season, allow garbage time touchdowns for Iowa on purpose because it is in the best interests of everybody on Iowa's schedule for Brian Ferris to remain employed as an unqualified, underachieving assistant coach. Why would they want to get rid of the guy? So it's like, man, Penn State really was taking it to Iowa. They were up 52 to nothing. They gave up 21 points in the last four minutes. What happened? We know what happened. 
This is to keep <laughs> Brian employed. Everybody in the Big Ten wants him around. So Phil Parker, no defensive scores for the Hawkeyes. Opposing teams, make sure you beat Iowa, but then maybe give up a couple scores at the end. <laughs> See, here's here's the thing. We need to flip this schedule because Nebraska, Illinois, Rutgers are the three teams that they're closing with. Those are going to be very competitive games that like all three of those teams really want to win. And so we need to flip it with Penn State, who I think will probably have a really good game against Iowa so they can just allow a bunch of late scores and Michigan state who either is going to be good or going to be terrible. And either way, I think would be more than happy to allow them to score points. Uh, and those are two coaches who I think would just be like, yeah, screw it. Screw it. Let's keep, uh, let's keep Brian Ferentz around. I, I think that, uh, that Illinois and Nebraska will be like, we got to win. We, we got to win this game. But I, I think that what is absolutely going to happen is I was going to score like 56 points on Utah State and then average like 17 in every other game and hope that just carries them to the finish line. That seems inevitable. So I'm making an announcement now. That Iowa-Nebraska game's on a Friday. Always right, it's on a Friday. <laughs> yes. So I can get back. I can get back for Ohio State at Michigan on Saturday. If Brian Ferentz needs like 22 points or 28 <laughs> points or something, we're going to have some... To, to hit the mark against Nebraska, I'm going. I'm going. And I might have up signs. I might dress up like a Cornhusker and put on overalls and hold up signs to cheer on the black shirts. Because I don't have anything against Iowa football. I have something against blatant nepotism at the expense of an entire football fan base and team. So I am rooting. I officially would like to announce I am rooting against Brian Ferentz and the Iowa offense this year. I apologize in advance to Cade McNamara, the new quarterback who's transferring from Michigan and seems like a fine fella. And he like called out the doubters about Iowa's offense. I'm a doubter, Cade. I'm a doubter. <laughs> I'm not doubting you. I'm doubting Brian Ferentz and his daddy. So this is an embarrassment. The other thing about this is, is this is why do we need Gary Barda? Because Gary Bard is actually supposed to be Brian Ferentz's boss because that's the loophole around the nepotism stuff because Iowa actually has a rule about this stuff. If you are cowardly enough that the only way you are willing to fire somebody is by a metric, why don't we let an algorithm be the athletic director at Iowa? I am the Iowa athletic director. The softball team did not average 4.6 runs per game, so the coach is fired. Like, what's just going to do math? That's how we evaluate. This is how we make personnel decisions, Gary Barta. We do it by an algorithm. The track and field team, the 1,600 meters, was not fast enough. The coach is fired. That's how we do it. Way to be a boss. You're an embarrassment, Gary Barta. Come on the show. You're an embarrassment, Kirk Ferentz. You're an embarrassment, Brian Ferentz. You're unqualified for the job. You've never been good enough. And that Iowa is doing this to its fans. It's not about anybody else. It's about one group of people. The loyal, dedicated, diehard fans of Iowa football who have to put up with this ridiculousness from a cowardly athletic director and a head coach who runs a college football program like a family picnic. Nobody would hire this guy. Brian Ferentz couldn't get – he get hired by two people, his dad and his dad's best friend, Bill Belichick. He should be the towel boy for the Patriots this year. This is a joke. And they have taken a terrible situation and made it worse. And again, as an unbiased journalist who is here to cover college football and the joy it brings to people, I will be rooting my butt off 
for every defense that faces Iowa this year. Because it's better for everybody else in the Big Ten for Brian Ferentz to keep his job, it's not better for the Iowa fans. So I am. I hope they score 24. What if, are they going to round up? That's the next controversy. That's 24.73 <laughs> points it's per 20, game. It's 24.51. <laughs> Can you imagine they're losing to Nebraska 31 to 6 and they're at the goal line in the final 30 seconds trying to score so they can hit the 25 point threshold? We, what if we ever had a situation like this in sports? <laughs> 25 <laughs> points a game because you're too cowardly to make an actual decision. What a joke. I pray that they're down by 17 points with uh, with less than a minute left against Nebraska and they have to score. And in order to, to reach 25 points per game, they have to go for two. And it comes <laughs> down to one play for them to average 25 points per game. And uh, and we're watching like we're we're watching Bryant parents pull out his best play, which is like halfback dive or something. And uh, and oh, man, it's going to be drama. The the funny thing, again, about this is this would be good enough for 85th in the country if he averaged uh, 25 points per game. But like Iowa doesn't even do that that often. They they don't even average 25 a game all that often. And part of it is pace. Like, you know, the, the one thing that I will say is that part of the reason that they are so bland and conservative on offense is also because like Kirk Ferentz is protecting the defense with pace. But like, come on. Did, did you not watch Joe Burrow light everybody on fire? Or like we are past this. We're past this. We're not doing this anymore. And also, by the way, this is a much longer term thought than this. But, you know, the gravy train of being in the Big Ten West when nobody else can do much of anything is about to be over. That's about to be over whenever USC and UCLA come. And, uh, you know, credit to Kirk Ferentz, who's one of the great coaches of the modern era. But, geez, this this isn't going to cut it anymore. And when you see also the way that other teams in the Big Ten West are adjusting to the challenge, most notably uh, Luke Fickle bringing in who he brought in on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, also, you look at who Purdue brought in on the offensive side of the ball. Also, you look at who Illinois has brought in on the offensive side of the ball and what they did last year. I mean, this is this is not going to cut it for very long. And uh, I, I'm very curious to see how it gets handled. This is the other thing that's so insulting about this whole idea, because you make a very good point. Teams have styles. And the idea that now Iowa is going to assign success to a point total, you can very much buy the idea that Kirk Farron says, listen, we are a defense first team. We rely on special teams. The offense is the third most important part of our team. We have a way to win. And all that you're asking for, you're asking for competence within the structure of the team. Nobody should be asking for, for hard and fast stats. And they should throw those stats in our face and say, if you are judging Iowa success by stats, that's not the point. We're a, we're a complimentary football where the offense is charged with not putting the defense in a bad spot, being efficient, working the clock, and then being successful in the red zone. That's not what they're talking about. They are putting a number on this. That's the kind of thing that podcast people do because they are such – cowards and they are abdicating their responsibility as stewards of this athletic department and of this program they are passing it off to math and what if they play a game in a snowstorm what if they play another game in a hurricane 
Like Ohio State played at Northwestern and the wind was so bad it shut everything down. What if they have a game where their top three quarterbacks conk their heads together on the sideline, are all out with concussion protocol, and they're like the 49ers were in that playoff game. They're practically running wildcat, and they're just trying to make sure they're trying to win 17-16. There are ways to be successful. There are ways to be a competent offensive coordinator that are not tied to hard and fast baseline stats. They didn't even do fancy stats. They did points per game. Because they know, you know why? Because they know, uh, maybe the punt guy's going to, what if, are you going to tell the punt returner, hey, no fair catches this year. We want to, we want to try to steal two punt scores for Brian. No fair catches, right? Hey, Phil, hey, Phil, I know you kind of want to maybe play, play soft on third and 13 here and let them punt it to us. But if they punt it to us, like there's no way we're going to score. Can you blitz and maybe see if a guy can tip a pass and get an interception? Are you going to play differently? Because there, this is why people are in charge, because stats don't tell the whole story, because adults who aren't blood related to their employees have a way of evaluating people in a full, comprehensive way that goes beyond stats. So Gary Bartit, get, here, that you want to triple down? Let's triple down, Gary and Kirk, if you have such a great idea. All three jobs on the line, 25 points per game. You hit it, all three are safe. You miss it, all three are gone. Don't put it on Brian. Brian's bad. It's not Brian's fault he's bad. He tries hard. Brian Brian doesn't know any better. It's it's the old uh it, it's the old analogy from the office where where Pam goes, uh look, whenever a kid, a 12-year-old crashes a car into a tree, you don't say this is the 12-year-old's fault. You put the you'd look at the 40-year-old woman who put the 12-year-old in the front seat and said, "Hey, drive." And you know what? Gary Barda and Kirk Ferentz, you are the one who is putting the child in the front seat and telling him to drive when he's clearly not capable of doing it. By the way, the the one reason that I think that they went with this 25 points per game thing is that Kirk's company line has been when we score 24 points in a game, we are 55 and three over the past, I think, eight seasons. Um, You know, they've lost a lot more than three games over the past eight seasons. So, uh, you know, Good luck. Uh, certainly, look, the, the 2022 season was bad for a lot of reasons that were not just about their offensive coordinator being bad. Like, their their quarterback straight up had the yips. I, I don't know. There was a lot of things going on. They had injuries on the offensive line. But like you said, that's why you take a, a guy in context. And even getting to the point of saying, okay, here's a goal, is, is ultimately cowardly because it means that you're not actually evaluating what's going on on the field and and one of the things whenever you get into major college football that kind of shocks you after a while is realizing that sometimes you go into these rooms and some of these people have just as dumb ideas as we do (laughs) the ultimate it's when you grow up as a person is when you realize that you don't have to be smarter than everybody. It's that everybody else is just as dumb as you are. By the way, Brian France became the quarterback's coach last year. So that terrible quarterback play also on him. Yes, yes. They they, they fell from like 70th to 123rd in in passing offense. So congratulations, Brian. If this podcast goes more than an hour and five minutes, you're fired. (laughs) So... I I could evaluate you on your contributions to the podcast, on how smart and interesting you were, but instead, I'm just going to go by numbers because that feels easier. So, hey, 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 we better get a move on then. (laughs) 
An hour, four minutes, and 30 seconds. People are going to be hanging on. Oh, my gosh. What's going to happen? Is Shahan going to get fired? So Uncle Gary and Kirk are just going to sit on the porch and tell Brian, good luck, kid. Good luck, kid. You're 39. We got to have a tracker every week that tracks exactly where Iowa is in points per game. And you know what's going to happen? Somebody's going to do that and bring it to the game every single week. They're going to have a sign with like a dial, like, where is he? Are they above 25? Are they below 25? We have to commit to that bit now. I'm not so sure I would not. I I think I would. I don't have to double negative this. I think I would commit to a 25-minute podcast every week during the season (laughs) in which we analyze If they did get to 25 in the previous week, and do we think they will get to 25 the next week? An offshoot of the College Football Survivor Show. You know what it's called? The Brian Ferentz Survivor Show. Will he survive? I mean, what's more Survivor than this? And would that show be immensely more popular than this? Yes, it would be. I know everybody in Iowa would listen. By the way, 100% that is actually happening. The 25-minute, and if we go over 25 minutes, we're fired. The 25-minute Brian Ferentz Survivor Show brought to you by your friends at the College Football Survivor Show. So look forward to that. And also, if you see Gary Barta or Kirk Ferentz, tell them that Doug says they're cowards and they're abdicating their job responsibility, and we should triple down on this. What's good for Bry is good for Daddy Kirk and Uncle Gary. So I, I guess our, our, you know, maybe pie in the sky goal of getting all of the college football playoff chairmen on the show, probably not going to happen now. Uh, <laughs> no, I'd still do that. No, I mean, let's talk about playoff. <laughs> Gary, Gary, what was it like that year when you had to go on ESPN and explain why Clemson <laughs> should be second instead of fourth? <laughs> Gary, what, what what were negotiations like when you were negotiating the exact point total that your offensive coordinator would have to score to keep his job? <laughs> like, was that something where he, like, negotiated or did you bring that to him? How does this work? Or was he like, no, I only need to score 19 a game. I was like, no, 27. How, how does that work? I've never been part of a negotiation like that. Was Howie Mandel there? Do they have supermodels with briefcases? And Brian was like, uh, I'll take briefcase number six. And he was hoping he would have like 11 points per game in it. And they were like 25. And he was like, no, 25 is too many. How did they How did they decide that they were going to have a pay decrease, but still to an amount that's more than most group of five coaches? How, how did they decide on the number that they that he was going to be down $50,000 exactly? Like, how did how did he decide that? And how much was Brian's mom involved in this? Because it really is a family business and mom has her it's say a too. So, uh, so this is a joke. I don't want to call Iowa football a joke because Iowa football is not a joke. Because you know what's not a joke? Jack Campbell's not a joke. No, no, right? not at all. Like Lucas Van Ness isn't a joke. Like Riley Moss isn't a joke. Phil Parker's not a joke. Who was the – well, the receiver who left, he knew it was a joke, so he went to Purdue. Like these these players aren't jokes. These these players aren't jokes. These players are working their butts off. And they have an incompetent offensive coordinator who's employed because his dad puts family ahead of program. And I think neither of them should be employed. So we will monitor this. We will criticize them for this. We will root against them. I am rooting against Brian Ferentz. And I'm rooting against Kirk Ferentz. And I'm rooting against Gary Barta. Because they are allowing this to happen. Brian Ferentz isn't good enough to have this job. And they're all invited on. You can all come on the show. You know who I am, Kirk. You're invited. You're invited on the show. So come on. 
And also, we would love to have Brian on the on the offshoot because that's always one of those things on Saturday Night Live. Like Tina Fey does Sarah Palin, and Sarah Palin comes in, right? Does it? <laughs> so to have Brian Ferentz on the Brian Ferentz Survivor Show would be great. So I can't wait. This is the, this is our career rocket ship. You know, these guys did this playoff show like it was fine. But the Brian Ferrett Survivor Show, 25 minutes of gold every week. Let's rank other offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators. We'll do it next after this. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Shahan, I had to get that off my chest. I don't apologize. I don't apologize. (laughs) I'd say it again. We did go over 25 minutes. That was like 27. So I'm fired. <laughs> so are Tommy Rees and Kevin Steele on your list? These are the new hires made by Nick Saban in Alabama. And it's so interesting because neither fits the profile. Now, listen, the, the reputation of Nick Saban of kind of bringing in the recycled coordinator, that really only is on the offensive side of the ball. And we talked about that on a previous podcast because he had Kirby Smart for so long. Pete Golding was there for a long time. But this is super interesting because Tommy Rees is not that. He is an up-and-coming college offensive coordinator that he poached from Notre Dame, where Tommy Reese played and then coached, and then you poached that guy. Well, you poach him with money. And now the defensive coordinator is Kevin Steele, who you got, I think, on our Name That Saban coordinator because he was Nick Saban's first defensive coordinator for one year when Nick Saban started at Alabama. So it is a super back-around recycled defensive coordinator, but a guy who's always been in the college ranks. And then Tommy Reed as an up-and-coming offensive coordinator, it's opposite ends of the spectrum. It's exactly what we talked about, right? When you're looking for these coordinator combos, sometimes you look for a veteran guy who's been around, maybe on the backside a little bit, but a good veteran coach. And then you look for a guy on the rise. Bama got one of each. What do you think of the hires, first of all, and then we can figure out if they should be in our top five combo? Yeah, well, full transparency, uh, there, there are like, two or three uh that i'm that i'm confidently putting on the list and other than that i have like seven listed and i'm gonna kind of go off of vibes because th- I, I really feel like after you get past a top group it kind of is vibes but for me i do not lean towards putting them in my top five i i like the hires that were made i think that you know tommy reese is interesting because he did a pretty good job uh under brian kelly Last year was a little bit of a mess, but it was partially because they had quarterback injuries. They had to switch from Tyler Buckner to Drew Pine. Their offensive line took some time to come together. They didn't necessarily have the weapons that they wanted outside. This was very clearly a program in transition. But what impressed me the most was how much they improved week to week. I I think that they started to find their identity. They started to understand their personnel a little bit better. Uh, The thing that's interesting about Tommy Reese is that he does not fit within a schematic framework, I guess you'd say. He's not somebody who's an air raid coach or a spread coach or a pro style coach. I think that you saw aspects of different types of games uh, within his whole deal. And, And by the way, I mean, he has an interesting background because before he came to Notre Dame as quarterback's coach in 2017, he spent a year as a grad assistant at Northwestern and then a year as an offensive assistant with the San Diego Chargers. So, well, at the time were the San Diego Chargers. And so, you know, he kind of has this mixed background in some ways and i think that that comes out in a nice way so i like the upside of this hire i think that he's going to do probably a better job of raising the floor of this offense than i think bill o'brien did i i'm curious about what his fully realized version of an alabama offense is that's probably my biggest question about it defensively 
Look, I, I don't think that Nick Saban needed to reinvent the wheel. I think it's fine for him to hire a relative retread. Kevin Steele probably wouldn't have been my first choice, but it's not like he wasn't very successful during his time at Auburn, right? Which was 2016 to 2020. He's been in the SEC very recently. Uh, I think it is not an inspired hire. I don't think it needed to be an inspired hire. And by the way, the last guy that Nick Saban went with was a pretty inspired hire in uh, former UTSA defensive coordinator, Pete Golding, who obviously had his moments and then also had his flaws. So, I think that defensively, he really wanted to limit the variance. And offensively, I think he wanted to increase the possibilities. And I think that he did that. But for me, I don't have them right now in my list of the top five. I just think that Tommy Reese is still a little bit too much of an unknown in terms of what he's going to be on this team. And again, I I view Kevin Steele as a fine hire, although uh, somewhat uninspiring. And I will mention that uh, that obviously I heard many, 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 many horror stories about uh, Kevin Steele being a head coach because I went to Baylor University. <laughs> so I think it's well said for you on the defensive side of the ball that it's not inspired, but maybe it didn't need to be. So like safe, familiar, maybe isn't a bad way to go there. This Tommy Reese thing is interesting because, again, the, the constant churn on the offensive side of the ball, I think Tommy Reese stays until he's the head coach now. And... Unlike Steve Sarkeesian, who left to be the head coach at Texas, but he had been a head coach twice before and was back in that recycle mode, I also don't know that one or two good years as the Alabama offensive coordinator is going to have Tommy Reese up for a major power five job. And then now he's going to be in a spot of, well, I'm not going to jump for the Louisiana job. I'm not going to jump for, you know. The Troy job, right? I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I might be on the Kirby Smart plan here. I'm going to wait for a great job if you're successful. And now all of a sudden, you're looking at a world where what if Tommy Reese is Nick Saban's offensive coordinator until Nick Saban retires? Like, I wonder, like, as Saban was trying, because I think you just could have found another guy whose shelf life was probably two or three years. And it's worked. Like, there's no... No problem with how Saban has done this. He's found a very effective way to do this, and this is a change. So maybe the right guy just wasn't out there. The perfect fit that way just wasn't out there. So I get that, but this really is a significant change. And and like Tommy Reese becomes a very critical person sort of in the career of Nick Saban. Like maybe he'll be a blip. Maybe it won't work out in a year from now. He'll be in Josh Gaddis land out the door. I doubt that. But, I, you know. You don't want to be in Josh Gaddis land. <laughs> no. Like this is opposite side of the ball. Saban's a defensive guy. This is opposite. This is really, this is a really important hire. So I'll be curious how that works out. I ended up having, I went through everybody in the power five. Everybody that I thought had a chance to matter. And then I, we went through and I made a list of 11 combos and pick my five i did have reese and steel for alabama on that list of 11 i don't have them in my top five so i think it has a chance to work though i think it has a chance to work and and maybe have a, has a chance to work more cohesively than it has on the offensive side of the ball for a while so this is a really important hire for nick saban and i think he made a good choice all right let's go to number one on our list i have georgia yes 100 percent. and this is georgia with an asterisk because todd monken's interviewing Todd Monken is out interviewing for NFL jobs. I think he talked with Tampa, and I think he talked with Baltimore. That's been reported. He's the highest paid coordinator in college football, over $2 million a year, super impressed with what he dials up 
with that Georgia offense. I think he maximized everybody in that offense. He made Stetson Bennett look really good, knew exactly how to use him. And then on the defensive side of the ball, Dan Lanning left after last season to go be the head coach at Oregon this year. They get Will Muschamp in there. And this is, again, Munkin and Muschamp are both veteran guys. And then Muschamp's the co-coordinator with Glenn Schumann. Schumann's kind of an on-the-way-up guy. Muschamp is a guy who, in the end, probably isn't a great head coach. But the reason everybody wanted him as a head coach is because he was such a good defensive coordinator. So then you land a guy like that, and I don't know what his aspirations are. He's still not a very old guy. But I also think maybe this is the right place for him. So as long as Todd Monken doesn't take a job, I think Kirby Smart has the best coordinator combo in college football. No question about it. I I like that they have sort of the old and new eyes on the defense too. Uh, Glenn Schumann is a really young guy. He's like 31, 32. He was, he was somebody who was rumored to be a, a top target by Alabama. And I mean, he must have been happy where he is. Uh, and he's somebody who I think probably could have head coaching opportunities if he wanted them right now. But I think that he's smart to, to take his time and wait. And really, I mean, this is, you get three guys obviously with this group as opposed to two, but this is sort of an ideal coordinator pairing, right? Like this is how you want it to work. Uh, and, and yeah, Georgia to me is an obvious number one. Not only are both guys, uh, pluses, I think that both guys are elite level coordinators as well and there's a reason that this is a this is the team that's won back-to-back national championships i will ask you to go back to the alabama thing for one second i'm curious so let's say that todd monken also for for these purposes takes an nfl job i was surprised that you know tommy reese doesn't sound all that exciting uh, even though i think that it might work it feels like there weren't many obvious superstar assistance out for jobs this year. Do you know what I mean? Like it felt like it was a there like Garrett Riley was the one. Maybe we'll get to him later. Uh Jim Knowles last year, right? We had that at defensive coordinator where he was like this superstar top of the market hire. I don't really know who those guys were on either side of the ball heading into this cycle. I think it's interesting that Jim Leonard from Wisconsin is out there right now as a defensive coordinator. He he must be looking for NFL. He must be looking for NFL. Or taking a year off. And and he thought he was maybe going to be the head coach at Wisconsin. So I think that's interesting. Um, I think Paul Christ, the fired Wisconsin head coach as an offensive coordinator, possibly is interesting. The guy, this guy has a job, but I just wonder about him is Joe Brady, who's the quarterback's coach in Buffalo. He's not the offensive coordinator and is not the play caller there, but he was the offensive coordinator for the LSU Tigers in 2019. I think a lot of people thought he was on a rocket ship and it turns out he wasn't. Because he went to Carolina with Matt Rule. He got (sighs) fired before Matt Rule even did. So, like, that guy's interesting to me. So, in terms of that Bama got this taken care of while Monken's still at Georgia. And now if by the time you hear this podcast or a week from now, Todd Monken takes an NFL job, it feels like he wants an NFL job. Yeah. Just because you interview doesn't mean that you're desperate to leave. But this guy's been at both places. I just – and, and I think maybe, like, how could you get better at Georgia? And he just went through the whole Stetson Bennett rigmarole, which worked out great, but was kind of a kind of a thing to manage. And I just saw somebody, somebody was making, like, their 10 predictions for the college football season. I think one of them was, like, Georgia plays three quarterbacks but still wins the SEC or something. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what? Like, I'm, that could absolutely happen, but what a mess. So this might be the exact right time for Todd Monken to leave. How's it going to get better? And if he leaves, it's, I think it's the number one story remaining in the offseason of college football because I 
I think it is a somewhat fundamental shift for this mini dynasty and the best program in the country because he's the coordinator on the opposite side of the head coach, and I think he's that good. And then when you start lining up the names, to your point, I don't – maybe there's somebody obvious we're missing. Maybe there's somebody that Georgia would promote from within. Maybe we're missing the obvious guy. But it felt like Saban had a little bit of a tough time zeroing in on the offensive coordinator. And now Kirby Smart might have to do the same thing. I'd be fascinated to see where they wind up. No doubt. No, it's going to be a weird situation. But for now, Georgia specifically does not have to worry about it, and they are number one. Okay, I'll give you my number two then, since we have the same number one. Maybe we have the same number two. Michigan? I struggled with where to put Michigan. Um, I ultimately have them at five. I, But it's not because I don't think they're good. It's just, it's really hard for me to determine what's just kind of their system, you know, especially on defense. They, they kind of just like do the, I, I don't know what's, what to credit to an individual coach. Do you know what I mean? I agree. So this is Sharon Moore on the offensive side of the ball and Jesse Minter on the defensive side of the ball. It's complicated by the fact that Moore and Matt Weiss were co-offensive coordinators a year ago. Moore's offensive line, Weiss's quarterbacks, and Weiss got fired. And there are reports of something with the computer, and I don't know, and it's a really weird situation. He was not fired because of lack of football success. So the hard thing about this is the year before with Josh Gaddis and Mike McDonald, the first time Michigan made the playoff, they were great. And I thought their assistant coaches really mattered because at that point, they had made fundamental transitions. The big one was them firing Don Brown on the defensive side of the ball, which who was like had been with Jim Harbaugh from the jump at Michigan, and it wasn't cutting it anymore. And they changed the coach. They changed the style. Mike McDonald came in and took over. Basically, John Harbaugh said, hey, take this guy. Jim did. Mike McDonald was awesome. He went back to Baltimore. And then John Harbaugh said, take this guy, because Jesse Minner had been in Baltimore, but had gone to Vanderbilt for a year. And so he kind of came in and just kept doing what Mike McDonald did. And they were just as good without Aiden Hutchinson and David Ajabo. So I am giving credit to Jesse Minter on the defensive side of the ball. And then offensively, I just thought Sharon Moore like did a great job. And that it turned out that Josh Gaddis at Miami wasn't great. So it maybe leads you to the idea that it is a system at Michigan. However, that same system, Harbaugh was there and they'd never been this good. So Michigan got better when Harbaugh completely revamped the staff two years ago. And since then, they've made two straight playoffs after they revamped the staff and hired like seven new assistants. So I, all along the way, have given a lot of credit to Harbaugh for being willing to do that. And then I've given a lot of credit to that staff. I often don't give credit to the staff. I think it's a head coach and player business and everybody else is a middle manager. Michigan changed the assistants and bam, that was the turnaround. So I am comfortable ranking them this high because there's clearly a system in place, but they finally found the right people to execute it. And I do think Sharon Moore and Jesse Minter are good. So I'm comfortable having them at two. Yeah, I I think that they absolutely deserve to be ranked highly. Again, you know, at least for last season, these were both above average coaching units. The play calling was above average. They were pluses for the team. The the coaching, uh, I would argue, is the reason that they won the Big Ten and had a chance to make the college football playoff again. And you know, for me, you know, it's I think that my I don't want to call them questions because it's not questions. I think that I'm, it's easier for me to credit Sharon Moore for what he's done over the past couple of years than it is Jesse Minter. Cause Jesse Minter obviously was a first year assistant last year. But 
you know, the results are the results and the results were there. So uh, I, I had the number five on my list, but I kind of, I, I would say that I have like three three people fighting for two spots here so they're in that five six somewhere uh amorphous range okay so who's your number two combo then so i'm gonna go a little off board and i'm gonna go with andy ludwig and morgan scally at utah (laughs) not that far off the board they're third for me Okay. Okay. They, I think, have done a tremendous job. Morgan Scally is known, uh, I think, a little bit more than Andy Ludwig, but Ludwig did a really great job over the past two years of taking this offense to a really versatile place. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish players in crediting coaches. I, I think that Cameron Rising is fine. I think he's an okay quarterback. And I think that the way that this offense has been called has been critical to how efficient it has been throughout Pac-12 play. Uh, I, I don't think that they have game-breaking talent, but they've managed to move the ball on basically everybody. They've developed tight ends at an incredible level and put them in position to succeed. Once uh, once Brent Keithy went out, they were like, all right, Dalton Kincaid and Thomas Yasmin, this Canadian who's hardly ever played football, comes in. Like They just do such a good job of of putting players in good positions and defensively they're a known commodity they recruit exceptionally well they they're a factory of linebackers they're just so good on both sides of the ball and i don't think it's any coincidence that they continually play above their heads because these two guys are there morgan scally we have to mention had his salary cut in half a year ago because it was found that he used a racial slur in a text message in 2013 he's now had that salary reinstated and so there is a there is something in his past that needs to be noted but he is seems like he is likely the at, and at, at the time he was officially the head coach in waiting at Utah at that time and so they cut his salary and took away the head coach in waiting title now he's got his salary back. He is no longer the head coach in waiting, though, but he still might be the head coach in waiting. And he is a he is a Ute through and through. That is a, a guy whose name it feels like every time there's an opening at a big-time program for defensive coordinator, his name gets thrown out. And then it's like, he's not leaving. Like, this is his place. He loves it here. This is where he was made to coach. Kyle Whittingham can't coach forever. And Morgan Scally very likely is the next head coach at Utah, but the result is that you get a guy who probably could have a higher profile job. I like to say better job because Utah's awesome. I picked Utah to make the playoff this year. I mean, Utah's like one of the 10 best programs in college football right now. It's a great job. It's a great program. Great place to work. But Andy Ludwig also, again, like go Google Andy Ludwig. He's on every Notre Dame list, right? Everybody is doing a list of, oh, who might replace Tommy Reese. This is a guy, to your point, again, you respect people. It's why I respect Todd Monken. They don't just have great receivers. Chuck it up and go. He found a way to make the most of the players he had. Andy Ludwig, what do you have? You have tight ends. You have a quarterback who's good at this. You run the ball this way. Boom, it works. So, yeah, not off the radar. Right on the radar. So our top three, we of our top five, we have three of the same top five. We know Georgia, Michigan, and Utah, all in the top five. For both of us, I just realized I don't officially have a number five. I have a number four and then also vibes. So when we come back, vibes. We'll figure out the bottom of our list after this. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. All right, Duck and Shahan are back. Exciting news for everybody. We are 
getting rid of our subscription episode, which means not that it's going away. It means that we're going to have two free episodes a week starting next week. So we always have had this free show, and then we've had a bonus episode for Apple Podcast subscribers who paid $2.99 a month and got that extra show every week. Now you all get it. Congratulations, everybody. More of us for <laughs> content. So you don't have to do anything wherever you find this. If you're listening right now, it's the same place. It'll just be twice instead of one time. So that'll start next week. We will welcome everybody. We'll welcome all the loyal listeners who are like, eh, three bucks a month seems a little steep for these guys. Okay. Welcome. Welcome <laughs> to free. <laughs> also shout out to y'all who who kept dming me that i'd love to i'd love to be able to pay for your extra content but i don't have an iphone that's a non-factor now okay it wasn't my fault i couldn't do anything about it it actually was shahan's fault but i'll oh, take this man. no it wasn't shahan's <laughs> fault. uh it's just it's a thing we tried and we along we had a lot of discussions about shouldn't there be another way besides just the apple thing but we never got there so now it's free so now it's not an issue anymore so starting next week twice a week I don't know if the days might adjust. This show typically comes out on Wednesday. Maybe we'll go to like a Tuesday, Thursday. We're not exactly sure. We'll figure that out. But it's going to be two. Two a week. Just subscribe, then you won't miss anything. Okay. My number four is Kentucky. Okay. Okay. So Kentucky has hired back Liam Cohen, who they had. And then who left to be the off and was great. Was so good. He went to be the offensive coordinator of Los Angeles Rams. I don't know if people know, but the Rams had a bad year this year. So now he's back. They lured him back to Kentucky. As the offensive coordinator, they're paying him way. I think he's making 1.7. They are paying for this dude. And then their defensive coordinator is Brad White, who's done a really good job there. Their defense has been really pretty highly ranked at times. A couple when Brian Kelly got hired at LSU, he flew to Louisiana and interviewed at LSU. There, I think there are people that have come after him, and so far he has decided to stay at Kentucky. So I think these are both guys on the way up. That Liam Cohen, Liam Cohen, right? You have an NFL dalliance. Maybe it's not perfect, but it's like Kentucky, he says, is like the place he wants to be. We'll see how long that lasts. If he's really good, he'll get a head coach offer. And Brad White, I think, you know, you read people who cover Kentucky, you know, they think Brad White's ready for that. The Brad White would be qualified for a jump with how well the Kentucky defense has played in recent years. So Mark Stoops has done a great job at Kentucky. What Kentucky, Kentucky's a consistent winner in football, which they, that is not a birthright. For Kentucky football to be good in the SEC. So you cannot underestimate what Mark Stoops has done, but having two guys like this and to get Cohen back, there's some sizzle to it because you're paying him big money and he's coming from the Rams and that's cool. But there's substance to it because he got the NFL opportunity because of how good the Kentucky offense had been under him. So maybe it's a little high for this, but I feel like these are two coordinators that make a difference. And so I have Kentucky fourth. I honestly didn't particularly consider this because uh, this was also one where it's it's interesting to try to manage exactly defensively what's Mark Stoops, what's Brad White. You know, and that's something that we talked about before the show is, you know, there are situations like, uh, you know, the obvious one is Ryan Day, right, where he calls plays. And how do you balance this versus something else? Now, I do think that Brad White calls plays, but certainly Mark Stoops is involved in that process. This is probably a, a pairing I should have considered a little more. I think Liam Cohen is really good. When you when you look at all this stuff about Will Levis being a draft prospect, a lot of that has to do with what they were able to do uh, with him under Liam Cohen. And, uh, and defensively, 
for people who don't know, Brad White comes from sort of the Matt House school of defense. And Matt House has done a tremendous job at LSU. They kind of got the master instead of the student whenever they did make that defensive coordinator hire. And uh, no, I, I think it's a great combination. We, we kind of have to wait and see it play out this year, I think. That's probably the one thing holding it back on my list a little bit. But I say that and my number four is uh, two coaches who have very much ne- never played together or never coached together rather. But first I have to get to my number three. Okay, so we have your number one, your number two, and your number five so far. So who was your number three? My number three, and again, this one is like, if you ask me in five minutes, I might have a different idea. But my number three is Penn State, Mike Yurcich and Manny Diaz. And also also with it, uh, Anthony Poindexter on the defensive side of the ball as well. I, I think that this program has done as good a job as anyone on the defensive side of the ball for several years. And Point Dexter has been there through this whole process. Manny Diaz comes in as a very well-respected defensive coordinator to replace Brent Pry, who leaves to become the, the head coach at Virginia Tech. And I think Mike Yersich did a really solid job this year of getting the most out of Sean Clifford. There were some growing pains in his first season in 2021. I think in 2022, uh, he did a great job. We're going to kind of have to wait and see whether this grouping can move up potentially, although they are at three on my list. So maybe they're they're higher than they maybe should be right now. But uh, but I think that a lot of questions are going to come out about uh, him with Drew Aller, the superstar uh, rising, I guess, redshirt freshman, I guess he'll be next year or sophomore. I don't know if it really matters, but uh, but the new starting quarterback, Drew Aller. Um, but, you know, Mike Yurzich has a track record of success at Oklahoma State. He was not the main problem at Texas whenever that staff was let go. And I think Penn State has been a really good fit for him. So I felt like these were two coordinators who are both pluses. So I have them at number three. That's an interesting ranking. I, to me, a little bit, the jury is still out on Mike Yersich. Joe Moorhead was so impactful as the offensive coordinator at Penn State. And there's a world like it just didn't work out for Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State as the head coach. It wasn't a cultural fit. He went to Oregon and he helped beat Ohio State as the offensive coordinator at Oregon. And now he's a head coach in the MAC, right? And I think if you asked Joe Moorhead if you want to go back in time and just stay at Penn State and be like the Todd Monken of Penn State and make $2 million a year, he might go back and say, let's stay there. And so I feel like they are still missing him, but this is a big year for this. So so I like the idea, like Manny Diaz, again, who who probably got the short end of the stick at Miami that they just wanted Mario Cristobal and they kind of had to scoot Manny Diaz out the side door to make that happen. So Manny Diaz, who I think you know will be a head coach again, comes back as a defensive coordinator, who again is the guy we're talking about. He was so good as a defensive coordinator, he became a head coach. And now he's back to being a defensive coordinator. I think that's a good hire. I think that's real. The Yersich thing, they were not on my list of 11 because I still feel like I have a question mark about Mike Yersich, but I do agree with you for a team that was a top 10 team whose only two losses were to playoff teams and a quarterback in Sean Clifford who is limited. He can do what he can do, but he cannot do much more. But they found, and, and like the year before their offense was bad, they had no they had no offensive line and no running game. So they found a left tackle this year. They found a running game this year with some young guys. They had Parker Washington. They had Michael Tinsley. They had some real receivers. And then they found a way for Sean Clifford to make that work and manage the game and emphasize what he does well. And why? how do you do that? Well, because the guy calling the play figures out how to do it. So I actually think that's a really good one. That is that is worth talking about. So I, I like Mike Yurcich and Manny Diaz being here. And if this pops, if this pops, if the Drew Aller thing is a thing, 
like Mike Yurcich is going to get some head coach looks because the next two years of Penn State football might be as important as any two years of Penn State football since Kajana Carter and Kerry Collins were there. Like this is what they have been waiting for. And Mike Yurcich is the guy who has to make it great. There's potential there. They've got the line. They've got the running backs. They always run receivers through there, and they've got the quarterback they've never had. And Mike Yurcich has to maximize that. So I like thinking about Penn State on a list like this, Shahan. And by the way, if this doesn't work out, I'll just add this to the list of I have no idea what the hell is going on at, at Penn State ever, and I don't know if they're good or bad or anything. I, I they're the most like conf- not even confusing. Confusing implies that I have ideas about them that are like not cogent. I just don't know what's happening over there. Just I look up, it's like, oh, I guess they went eleven and two. Oh, I guess they, I guess they got destroyed by everybody and went seven and six. I have no idea what's happening over there. Like, there's no uh, the the human brain is built to take in narrative, and Penn State is the most narrativeless program under James Franklin that I've ever seen. There's just no through line with anything that's going on, but. I think that that might be changing right now because I think they finally do have the class that's going to do something consistent and and build something lasting. So we'll see. 2023 is a big year for them. Okay, that's a good pick. Number five for me, I am going to go with Wisconsin. And I am going to go with Phil Longo as the hire that Luke Fickle made. Got him from North Carolina because of their personal relationship to run the kind of offense that Luke Fickle wants to change what Wisconsin does offensively. Wants to open it up, wants to throw the ball more. They got multiple transfer quarterbacks in there. And the chance for Phil Longo to merge the best of what Wisconsin has been and and the new version of Wisconsin. This is a guy that Luke Fickle went out and got. I think that's a big hire on the offensive side of the ball. Then defensively, Mike Tressel, who was the nephew of Jim Tressel, has been with Luke Fickle a long time. Mike Tressel, you know, we started off talking about nepotism in this sport. You know, he started off with Mark D'Antonio, who was Jim Tressel's right-hand man, and then Mike Tressel worked for Mark D'Antonio forever at Michigan State. To Jim Tressel's credit, he never, never hired his nephew. So Mike Tressel never worked as a full-time assistant for Jim Tressel, but then he wound up at Cincinnati with Luke Fickle. And Marcus Freeman was Luke Fickle's right-hand man, and then when he went to Notre Dame, like, Mike Tressel's the guy now. So Mike Tressel is going to be the defensive coordinator. Luke Fickle is a defensive head coach. I think it's a pretty good pairing, and this is mostly about Phil Longo. But listen, Mike Tressel's proven that he's been around the Big Ten. He knows what's up. We can get into the people like the other people we that didn't make our top five, and there's one in particular I want to talk about. I don't have a strong conviction about this, but they're certainly in my top 11, and I'll go here because I like the potential of what Phil Longo might be. And again, sometimes when it's a new coach like – I have some other first-year coaches on here because when you're the new coach and you got some juice and your AD says fire away, you can like you can hire a good staff. Like you can go get your guys. But I think for Phil Luke Fickle to go do this is a big deal. So I think Phil Longo has a chance to make a big impact. No, I'm I'm very excited about this pairing. Like you said, uh, I think Mike Tressel has proven to this point that he is going to be a serviceable, a, above average, solid defensive coordinator in the Big Ten, but. The, the Phil Longo thing is so interesting because he is such a dynamic offensive coach, but the way that he does it is not just the most un-Wisconsin thing I've ever seen in my life, but like the most un-Luke Fickle thing that I've ever seen. 
right? Because I mean, the the guys that we're talking about coming through before, like we had Mike Dembrock last year, right? To, uh, who who helped lead them to the college football playoff before he was hired away by Brian Kelly. Like that is a that is a modest like slow things down, like be very deliberate type offensive coordinator. And then you bring in Phil Longo, who is speed, 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 pace, 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 tempo, tempo, tempo. Just the complete antithesis to what you think about when you think of Wisconsin. And now the thing is, and I think this is important to know, is that Luke Fickle is not an idiot. He knows the reputation. He understands what he's signing up for. And I anticipate that if they decided to make this decision, they've had conversations about how can we moderate what you do to really fit our team best? Because Luke Fickle is a CEO. He is somebody who is thinking about how everything will work together. So I anticipate that that's going to be less of a problem than people think, but it is a departure to say the least. Yeah. And it's, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to say this combination. Uh, five for you. Oh, no, we have your five. Who's your four? Last one for you. So I'm going with another pair of coordinators who have never coordinated together as part of a new coaching staff. And I'm going out to Boulder, Colorado, and I'm going with Sean Lewis from uh, the former head coach at Kent State and Charles Kelly, a former associate defense coordinator, assistant, like you, a co-coordinator at Alabama. These are two really experienced coaches, in my opinion. Sean Lewis should already be a Power 5 head coach. It's kind of crazy that Sean Lewis is not with everything that he accomplished at Kent State, a place that's really, really difficult to win. Um, but instead, he ends up joining uh, Coach Prime staff over at Colorado. And Charles Kelly is, is just a guy who's been around for a long time. Uh, he hasn't necessarily run his own defenses all the time at this highest level, but he is somebody, when you talk about uh, first-year staffs and joining a program like Colorado, a very impressive hire, I think. You know, he was defensive coordinator at Florida State from 2014 to 2017. You know, it, it was a mixed bag, but this is going to be a different kind of game. Playing alongside Sean Lewis's offense, playing on uh, Deion Sanders' staff in the Pac-12. I really like this combination. I think that this is about as experienced and credible a combination of coordinators as you could have possibly expected from Deion Sanders at Colorado. And I love the move and I, I think that it's going to work. I love it. I love the inclusion of that here. That's a really smart choice by you. Weren't in my top 11, but like I, they should be. Cause again, what Sean, Sean Lewis, man, like gave Georgia a little bit of trouble last year and got a lot of people's attention, but, but did a good job at Kent state. So I like that top five. Ohio state's not on this list. You mentioned this, this is going to, I think this is a huge thing to watch Ryan day has said that he is going to have Brian Hartline call plays in the spring with the idea of Ryan Day possibly giving up play calling. So that's why I don't have Ohio State in my top five. Kevin Wilson left to be the head coach at Tulsa. He was the non-play calling offensive coordinator there. Jim Knowles, we know, was the big hire of the offseason a year ago. But Ohio State's defense was much improved, but also Ohio State's defense had moments that let them down in the two biggest games of the year against Michigan and Georgia. So I did not feel compelled, like, oh, Jim Knowles has to be on this list at all costs. And Brian Hartline's never called plays. And he might be about to. And I actually think it's the right move potentially for for Ryan Day to give up play calling to become more of a culture coach at Ohio State. I think they could use that. I think he can better use his time. And I think Brian Hartline is certainly capable, but we've never seen it. And so monitoring will keep our eyes on it. And the difference of whether Brian Hartline calls plays or not is like a huge deal. Brian Hartline will eventually call plays. I, I thought maybe it was going to be that Ryan Day was going to say, okay, Hartline's the offensive coordinator. That's a promotion for him. We knew that was coming when Kevin Wilson left. 
but I'm going to call plays and Brian Hartline's going to be groomed to do so at some point. And instead, Ryan Day this this month said, no, we're going to see how it goes in the spring. And the reason I'm going to try is because I think that's what he wants to do. I think he wants to pass it off, but I don't think we should put them there yet. But that is a huge, that's a big decision for any head coach, Shahan, when you step away from the play calling duties on the expert side of the ball. No doubt. And I think that this has a chance to really work. But for me, I, I can't put somebody who's never been an offensive coordinator, right, in a list like this. No matter, I, I think that Jim Knowles is a top five defensive coordinator potentially in the game. Like, I think he's really, really good. But you can't put a zero, right? Like you can't put a zero, which is what we have right now from Brian Hartline, even though I think that he's certainly set up to be a huge success. So if Kevin Wilson was still here, I think that that's an interesting discussion. Then maybe I'm putting them at two or three, right? Like they're, they're really up there, but I, I don't think I can do that with Brian Hartline. A, a couple other people who, uh, who I had on my short list. Clemson with Garrett Riley and Wes Goodwin. I, I think that Wes Goodwin did a pretty solid job in his first season as defensive coordinator. It's, again, it's hard to always tell with a first-year guy because you're just like, are they just continuing what was already there or are they building it? But I, I think he did a, a more than admirable job. And Garrett Riley is going to be so huge for that team. He was the Broyles Award winner as the best assistant coach in the country this year. And let's put it this way. I, I don't think that he's going to go full Gattis. <laughs> It's terrible having a thing named oh, for you. I feel so bad for him. It's just, what is what is going on, man? It's, it's, and again, on the list, there's like a lot of interesting guys still out there who are, who don't have jobs yet. We'll, we'll be curious to see where they land. I also had them on my list. Um, I have one that I... Do you have Kansas State on your list? I considered them. I considered them very strongly. Colin Klein. Yep. Used to be the quarterback there, offensive coordinator. Joe Klanderman, who had been a success at the lower level, right, as a defensive guy. I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on the coordinators at Kansas State, but it feels like they've really mattered to the success Kansas State has had. So I was, I'm was, i always on alert for Big 12 stuff from you, Shahan. So I was curious. <laughs> you at least gave them some consideration. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned you're not uh, in the weeds with Big 12 coordinators. Well, I am in the weeds with Big 12 coordinators. <laughs> uh, the only thing that that kept me limited to some extent with them is their relative lack of experience. Uh, Klanderman took over play calling responsibilities in 2020 on the defensive side of the ball, has done a really, really solid job. The, the unit's definitely improved. Conkline has one year of work, and it was a really good year of work, but... It's just when you compare him to some of these other guys on the list, I, I felt like there were other people with a little bit more of a track record and more experience at this level. But they're definitely a combo I'd watch heading forward. Uh, you know, Kansas State, look, they, they lost a lot. They're not going to be back in the Big 12 title game next year, but they have a great staff. Uh, another thing to mention with Colin Klein is that uh, that Chris Kleiman, the head coach over at Kansas State, let go of his longtime offensive coordinator in order to promote Colin Klein, who, remember, did not come with him. He was somebody who was already at Kansas State as a grad assistant and as an analyst. So this is somebody who who was kind of certainly not pushed onto him, but it, it was somebody who he inherited in some ways at Kansas State and, and really liked what he saw. So I thought that, that was a really smart move on his part to promote him. And it's, it's worked out in a big way. Another guy that I will go with is uh, I'll actually say in the big 12, I have two more one, uh, the one big 12 one, 
I was very impressed with Texas Tech staff this year. They have Zach, Zach Kitley, who was the offensive coordinator at Western Kentucky during Bailey Zappi's breakout season, also came with him from Houston Baptist, which is now Houston Christian, which is a whole other, whole other thing. But uh, then on the defensive side of the ball, Tim DeRuiter, a longtime successful defensive coordinator, had success across the state of Texas, was, I believe, the former head coach at Fresno State, I think it was. And uh, he transform that unit in one year it was a pretty okay unit in 2021 and in 2022 the numbers don't look great but if you watch like if you watch them play they held on to games a lot they were a big part of texas tech finding a way to win eight games for the first time since 2013 so that's a combo that i definitely think people should be watching one other combo that i thought about old miss was just hired pete golding from alabama which Pete Golding, it's one of those lateral moves that's, well, the program's not as good, so it's not lateral, but it sort of ran its course at Bama. But that's a pretty good hire for Ole Miss, I think. And then Charlie West Jr. is 29, but he's on this list again. Find a list. He was on the list when the Patriots were hiring an offensive coordinator before Bill O'Brien took it. He's on the Notre Dame list now. I guess it's just because his dad worked at both those places. Hold up. Are you sure that you're not reading lists from like 2005? (laughs) Are you sure there's a junior there? What was the phrase that Charlie Weiss had? Like a significant schematic advantage or whatever. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, So he's like, I mean, Charlie Weiss is one of those guys. I mean, I guess he was good, but like this is not. I think Charlie Weiss Jr. might be overcoming some stuff with the other, with the, the wreckage that Papa left in his wake at a couple places. He's so, never going to be hired in the state of Kansas, I can tell you that much. No. no. So, like, again, Charlie Weiss had his – proved his football bona fides, but um, Charlie Weiss Jr., he's just – he's on people's minds. And so another young guy – he's not even 30, but I'll be really curious. Again, you know, Lane Kiffin has a lot to say about how Ole Miss plays offensive football – but that's an, that's a again for a place like Ole Miss, you get not that Pete Golding's on the way down, but this guy was the four year defensive coordinator at Alabama. Now you got him, and maybe Charlie Weiss Jr. is going to be something, and you you have him on the way up right now. I think it's a potentially interesting. Not I didn't give him serious consideration for the top five, but interesting combination potentially for Ole Miss. It's definitely an interesting combo. I didn't love Ole Miss's 2022 offense. That would be my one qualm. And uh, they switched from Jeff Levy to Charlie Weiss Jr. during that run. It's more personnel. It's not It's not that I don't think he's good. But, uh, you know, I, I think I needed to see a little bit more from him. I, I am very optimistic about the Pete Golding hire. Like, when you're, when you're the, the defensive coordinator at Alabama, you, you can't win. You're either Kirby Smart and you're not. <laughs> those, those are the bars, right? And so... For me, I was not that concerned. They, they were an inconsistent unit at times. I also feel like, you know, and, and somebody who is much smarter schematically than me should probably go deeper into this. You know, they played a style that I think was really built to stop the sort of flyover type game, the really spread type stuff. And if you're Alabama, you don't really need that the same way because you just have four defensive linemen who win their one-on-one matchups and you're done and so I think that getting back to the basics will be good for Alabama but I think that actually uh I, I think that Pete Golding will actually raise the floor a whole lot at Ole Miss versus what they've had there the past couple of years so I, I like the hire quite a bit all right those are our one, best more, one more one more one more oh you got oh I got one more another I got honorable one more. mention for Shahan. I know I know it's a long Ooh. list Oh, by the way, real quick, just real quick, we're both fired. 
We're over 105. <laughs> so this is the last hurrah. We'll yeah, be back yeah. next week with two free episodes with two different hosts well, because we've know. both been fired by the algorithm that Gary Part- Barta made in charge of this podcast. You, you mean uh, you mean your your dad, Mister Le Maurice, is firing us? I yeah. I, I, I got the I can will never forget the email that I got from uh, Le Maurice and son saying, "Would you want to be on my podcast?" Let me let let me check real just one second. Hold on one second. Hey, Dad. Yeah, can I still do the podcast even though we went over? He said, "Okay, I have to wash his car, but we can still do it." He okay. said, and, "But but at least we got the raise." Uh, my last one. And really, I, I think that staffs are just so fascinating. I could talk about this all day, honestly. But my last one, who I actually, this is the one that I considered in my 5-6, uh, where I thought about putting them over Michigan, is Oregon State. Oregon State has been really, really solid. Brian Lindgren didn't have the best year last year because, uh, as I've mentioned many, many, many times, Oregon State threw <laughs> for 60 yards and beat Oregon. <laughs> they threw for 60 yards. That's imp- How is that possible? But in previous years, he's managed this offense really, really, really well. Uh, you know, they, they had a great running game despite the issues passing the ball. Now they're going to bring in DJU, and I think they're going to just be legitimate Pac-12 contenders and Trent Bray is somebody who I'm surprised does not get more attention as one of those guys on the defensive side of the ball maybe they feel like he you know is specific to the way that the Pac-12 plays maybe you know I I don't know what it is exactly but he's done an unbelievable job because remember uh, Jonathan Smith is an offensive coach that that's not somebody who's who's managing that defense it's really I think a credit to Trent Bray the way that this defense has played and the fact that they've had a chance to uh to obviously compete for the for 10 wins for the first time in God knows how long at Oregon State so uh really impressive uh group of coordinators to me and I think that that they have a bright future especially heading into 2023 when i think that with how much they bring back they are going to be a legitimate factor uh not just in the pac-12 but who knows maybe we'll have to have a discussion about them whenever august comes around hi we are both very excited about oregon state i am already having iowa state flashbacks i don't know that you've gone out (laughs) this is like maybe a, a, a fresh limb for you to climb out on i feel like i climb out on these limbs too often and I fall off. So I'm going to be careful. I might just pick Georgia four times to take every playoff <laughs> spot. I'm not sure. It depends if Todd Monken is back. But we will keep our eye on Oregon State because I think both of us like a lot of what's going on there. Okay, that officially will do it. Next week, two free shows and then all the weeks after that. For now, for Shahan Jehiraja, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was the College Football Survivor Show. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.